everybody, nice and inclusive. Um, welcome back to another episode of Science in Podcast with your jolly hosts, Jared and Madison. Guess which one I am? Madison. Guess which one I am? That's Jared. Well, you spoiled it, so. I did. They're supposed to guess. Woo! So we're back <laughs> <laughs> for another round of taking the headache out of peer-reviewed scientific literature, except there is a twist this week. A little bit of a caveat. This is part of our Squashing Nonsense series. You might remember Squashing Seaspiracy when we squashed that terrible documentary. Um, so this time we are squashing the idea of enforcing human morality on non-human organisms, i.e. animals. And we'll tell you why we're doing that. Darren has a very enchanting story for you all. I don't know if enchanting is the right word, but mm -hmm. okay. We went down a lot of rabbit holes researching this topic. We also pulled in a dear friend of ours, Tori Babson, who has tons of experience um, in the animal husbandry field, specifically in zoos and aquariums, where you really come up against the public and treatment of animals and all of that. Um, we asked her some very specific questions uh, in order to squash this idea. She did not <laughs> strictly did. answer our questions, but she did give answers. She did. And her answers were actually a lot more interesting than yeah. what we were originally planning to squash. So instead of the title of this being Squashing Enforcing Human Morality on Non-Human Organisms, which is such a catchy title, you would have loved it. <laughs> um, instead, the title today and the topic today is Sex, Murder, and Vegans. Just a bit more catchy. Bit more catchy mm -hmm. and that's what we're going to be talking about um as it pertains to morality and animals sex murder and then just like a fun little deep dive on veganism how to do it well how to not do it well the problems with it and how it basically it can become an eco-fascist ideology and of course before we get into the good stuff we're going to throw some jargon at you. Mm -hmm. So why don't we mosey on over to our jargon corner? It is a short jargon corner today. We only got a few of them. Uh, Madison, are you with me? I am with you. I am okay. here in the jargon corner. I'm ready to be jargged. <laughs> Great. Um, fantastic. Our first uh, jargon is anthropomorphization or the act of anthropomorphizing something. I can't believe I said that good twice. Like you said, you said so good. I said so good words. <laughs> so yeah, you might have heard the term anthropomorphizing before, or maybe it's your first time hearing this extremely long word that gets tossed around over and over if you work at a zoo or an aquarium, or in children's cartoons. So what is anthropomorphizing, Jared? Anthropomorphizing, Madison, is uh, generally the act of attributing exclusively human characters, uh, human features to animals that are not humans. Basically putting thoughts, your thoughts where they should be. Projecting on an animal. Um, a great little example of this is when dogs do that thing where they show all of their teeth and people are like, oh, he's smiling. You're not. No, <laughs> no he's not. <laughs> yeah. Another poignant example is the film Finding Nemo, in which... The clownfish is so distraught at the loss of the mother and the son that they go and follow each other. In real life, um, in a clownfish colony, if the mother died, actually Nemo's dad would become his mom and then Nemo would, well, he would have sex with, with his dad, who's now his mom. And that's how they would do that. Would that have been a better movie? Yes. Would, would that been, not be a great movie for kids? Would have had a different rating, for <laughs> <Also> sure. <yes. laughs> so, like, there is a definitely a place for anthropomorphizing. It can help people feel more connected to animals. Um, like, Finding Nemo got a lot more attention for coral reefs mm -hmm. and the ocean, which was great. Um, but it can also go too far and cause a lot of problems. Exactly. Um, although there is a bit of nuance in it as well, uh, from, from the perspective of like an ethologist, someone studying, uh, the field of animal behavior and trying to sort of get into the world of their animal, mm -hmm. um, you kind of have to anthropomorphize a little bit, or I guess that's not the right way to say that. But the thing is a lot of what we assume to be exclusively specifically human is not. Um, so yes. you do have to sort of find that line to draw yourself, but there are some things of our own personalities, our emotions, our perspective that you sort of can and have to incorporate in your animal to actually understand it. Uh, the caveat being that you can't do it too much or else you will basically be putting your words in their mouth. Exactly. Like there's a fine line between empathy and trying to spend a day in your animal's shoes or they paws, so to speak. Um, and making more your... pricing would be putting shoes on them. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a fine line between, yes, trying to empathize with your animal, figure out their perspective, put yourself in their shoes and making your animal a mirror for all of your emotions and problems and projecting on them. Yeah. 
like if a primate researcher starts talking about the chimpanzee's ability to do taxes, um, it is a noble goal. I don't want to do my taxes either. Uh, but you know, not a great job for a chip. Yeah. That make yeah. Um, and like, you can even think of it, even within humans, we often misunderstand other people if they come from a different culture from us or if they were raised differently from mm-hmm. us. For example, in America, we smile all the time. Does not mean we're happy. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just what's culturally expected of us. And I ran into an experience when I lived in a different country um, where people, if you smiled, that was like laughing. Mm-hmm. And so people thought I was laughing at them all the time. <laughs> yeah. Hard to make friends. Oh, no. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's awkward. So, yeah. Um, obviously, animals are even harder to communicate with than other humans who we just don't know. So the problem of accidentally, basically, miscommunicating and misunderstanding them gets expanded. And they have a harder time clearing it up for us because they don't know what we're even mad about. Mm-hmm. And all of this could have been stopped by just... Well, I guess you can't. I, I guess you can't anthropomorphize a human, so we're gonna pretend I didn't say that. I didn't even know what you were gonna say. I don't know where I was going. I was that. like, "How are we gonna stop it? Stop what? For, first of all, we're not gonna." All right, <laughs> continue Moving right along. We <laughs> we okay. Next term, ecofascism. Eco fascism is something that sucks a lot. No, okay. Let me give you an actual definition. Well, that is the Webster dictionary definition. Sucks. That's what it says. If you, mm-hmm. yep. So, ecofascism is a word you might not have heard yet, and it seems like two things that kind of counteract each other or contradict each other. People think of the environmental movement or being eco-friendly as something like really nice and sweet, and then of course, fascism is, you know, Nazis killing other people, um, general genocide. Not good stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, how do those things go together? Well. Um, there is no official definition of ecofascism, but I found a really good one in a Vice article. Um, and Vice describes ecofascism as an ideology which blames the demise of the environment on overpopulation, immigration, and overindustrialization, problems that followers think could be remedied through the mass murder of refugees in Western countries. Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> so you run into this a lot, people blaming human beings as a whole for the destruction of the planet. Um, but where it becomes fascism is when people specifically say, well, they just keep having babies in insert country. That's not the one that you live in, or they're using all the resources over in once again, um, basically blaming a specific group of humans that's different from you, um, for the problem. And mostly people blame, uh, developing nations in Africa, Southeast Asia, etc. Which is not at all fair. No, and it is not at all... <laughs> They are absolutely not the ones causing these problems. Um, The problems that many people point to and say, humans are the problem. Nope, it's colonialization (laughs) or colonization, (laughs) colonialism, and capitalism that have really caused all of these problems. Over-industrialization, yes, is a problem, but guess who started that? That'd be industrialists. Western nations. Yeah. Yeah. Western nations, colonizers coming in and treating the land as something that can be commodified and taking it away from the people who are living with it as stewards. See all the good that's done. And that exploded the economy of so many colonizing nations to the point where they're still considered, I mean, you look at the division between developing and developed countries. The ones that are quote unquote developed are the ones that did all of that pillaging. And now they're still reaping the benefits and the worst effects of issues like climate change are hitting hardest people in those quote unquote developing nations who did not get to reap any of the benefits um, of what was stolen from their land. So yeah, it's a problem. (laughs) It's a problem. problem. Um, I found a really great article on ecofascism, actually in Teen Vogue. Really? Yeah. Why were you reading a Teen Vogue? I... (laughs) (laughs) Madison is 27 for all of our listeners. Um, I'm a teen at heart. Uh, well, there you go. No, because I was just, you know, I was Googling and mostly I was finding scientific papers, but then this one popped up and I was just curious to see what Teen Vogue had to say about this. And I found this article called Ecofascism. I found this article called Ecofascism, What It Is, Why It's Wrong, and How to Fight It by Adrian Corcione. And it was published in Teen Vogue on April 30th, 2020. Check it out great stuff in there because it's mostly quotes from people who are like the utmost scholars on this issue, like Naomi Klein. Nice. Yeah. So Naomi Klein said of ecofascism that ecofascism argues that climate change is God's will, 
that there are too many people anyway, and that there's going to be a great purge, and perhaps that's all for the best. It's environmentalism through genocide. Oh boy. So obviously this has come to a head with the pandemic, um, and how the pandemic is affecting marginalized groups more severely than people who have all the power, the money, the houses. Because obviously. (laughs) Not because they deserve it. Um... So while it's true that human consumption is a problem for the environment, what eco-fascists do is they place the blame exclusively on those marginalized communities that are hit the hardest. And so a great example of this is how we produce so much garbage and trash over here in the U.S. And because of currents, a lot of that ends up on the shores of places like Indonesia and Africa. And so you see these pictures of people in those countries wading through just seas of trash. And people look at that, eco-fascists point at that and say, look, They're doing a terrible job of managing their waste. Look at their trash is all in the ocean. We don't do that over here. Oh, God. Whereas it's actually our trash that has ended up over there. So basically taking away the context and just kind of fitting any scenario to fit your viewpoint. Exactly. Looking at a picture and fitting that picture into your existing worldview instead of actually doing the research. Um, So called confirmation bias in some cases. Yeah. There's a big push to get eco-fascism included in basically domestic terrorism watching Hmm. because, for example, that young man in El Paso, who killed 22 people, um, his manifesto, which I have not read, includes a bunch of arguments that are eco-fascist. Oh, dear Lord. Yeah, so it's it's spread to the right. It also has and causes problems on the left, mostly with um, really militant vegan groups, white vegan groups mm-hmm. specifically, which I'll talk about more later. Um, and uh, I think that's a, it's a kind of a shallow dive on eco-fascism, but... What I'll leave you with is this. (laughs) Um, If you hear anyone saying humans are the virus in a non-sarcastic way, uh, shut that down. Run the hell away. Yep, that is just a gateway right into that ideology. And I'll leave you with this quote from Klein, who I love. Look up Naomi Klein. Total badass. This is the time to be really vigilant about any idea that this pandemic is weeding out people who needed to be weeded out anyway. These are fascist logistics. Mm-hmm. So in the time we live in, that's really what to watch for with yeah. fascism. Also, anyone that has like an I have an immune I have an immune system banner uh, mm. on like their profile or anything, I yeah. that gets an immediate block for me. Absolutely. Yeah. Ugh, ugh. Okay, so I feel like you probably know what ecofascism is now. If you don't, write us. Um, I'm not gonna do that part though right now. I forgot to do at the beginning, but you know where to find us, right? Yeah. You found us here. Mm-hmm. Science underscore in underscore podcast. All right, what's next in the jargon corner? <laughs> <laughs> next up in the jargon corner is something that actually kind of ties into the previous term. Um, there's a few ways to say it. Uh, you can say hierarchy of nature. You can say great chain of being. You can say ladder to perfection. Uh, they basically all mean the you same thing. You can say bullshit. You can say bullshit uh, because <laughs> it is. Um, this is an idea that used to be shared by basically yeah everyone in evolutionary biology that there is this sort of like pinnacle of of evolution uh what is that pinnacle of evolution of course it's the human right because we're the most developed we got everything going on so you got like microbes and plants at the bottom we're god's favorite Mm -hmm. um god's favorite would actually be worms and insects because there are innumerable more species than there are of like mammals and primates um but yeah uh the hierarchy of nature is basically like there is a pinnacle of evolution, and generally that pinnacle is taken to be us by anyone who tries to co-opt this term. Uh, spoiler alert, there isn't one. No. No. There is no such thing as perfection, first of all. Perfection is a word that we made up to define a concept that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's... <laughs> oh, you know, um, I'm going to pull an example from a book called Your Inner Fish by Neil Shubin. Oh, I love uh, that book. That is a really good book. It's um, so good. You want to know a way that we're not perfect is um, a product of our evolution is that we get hernias. Oh, yeah. Oof. Ow. Uh-huh. Hernias being when your organs uh, spill into a pocket of uh, body cavity that they're not supposed to be in. And your muscles just like, eh, eh, and then your organs go bloop on the inside like a terrible balloon. Uh-huh. So oh. you know what? You know who doesn't get hernias? Fish. Fish. Mm-hmm. Fish don't get hernias. Um, it has sort of been the reworking and stretching and molding of our bodies to finally get to something that looks like us uh, that does that. That's why fish don't get hernias, uh, mm-hmm. because their bodies kind of stayed the way they were for the past... 100 million years or so. Really mad that I'm not a fish, as you know. Well, cladistically you are. I uh, I like but, to think of it that way. But I don't want to get hernias. I do want to breathe underwater. And I want to live in the ocean, not up here. Hmm. Have you tried being a manatee or dolphin? I wish I can. I wish I could. I think you have better prospects of being a manatee than a fish. 
Uh, all things being equally preposterous. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's this... So, have you ever watched the show Lovecraft Country? No. It's really good. Um, it looks at Lovecraftian horror through like a lens of the black perspective, which is awesome. Cool. But there's a really great scene where there's this white supremacist character who's explaining the great chain of being. Mm-hmm. And he's talking... He says... He has this monologue, which I say it's great, but it's great because it's, you know, awful. But it's perfectly encapsulates what people mean when they're talking about this that in the moment that god created the earth everything was in its place from the perfect man at the top to the woman to i'm not going to use the word that he uses for people of color (laughs) all the way down to the lowest wriggling worm so it's this idea that when God created the universe, everything was in this perfect organization that had white men at the very tip top, and they were like the closest to God. And then basically Eve screwed it up with the apple and the snake and that whole shenanigan. And that's why there's chaos and all of that. So basically it's all blamed on women um, for destroying it. But that the purpose of man now is to put everything back in its place. And that actually is something that drove a lot of early naturalists like Darwin, for example, um, with his theory of evolution. Originally, was trying to basically more look at what was that great chain of being and like put it in order. And then he found other things which were better, mm-hmm. which um, we now have science. Yay, science. <laughs> Yay, science indeed. It's not perfect, but it's better than religion. Um. <laughs> <laughs> you ever think about how um, as species continue and continue and continue to be described, the Noah's Ark story makes less and less sense? Right? Like, how are you going to fit 300,000 species of beetle alone on that? boat and then not have 30,000 species of fish um 6,000 species of mammal 10,000 species of birds 6,000 species of reptile and then the 95% of other animals that live on this goddamn planet also two by two I think not there are so many mating rituals that involve many more than two Mm -hmm. and also have a lot more than two sexes much less genders Mm -hmm. so um I guess we're squashing the bible this (laughs) week Might be. That would take a whole week to record. Um, Okay, so I guess that was the hierarchy of nature. (laughs) Yeah, it's stupid. It's canceled. Yeah, nature's canceled. Well, not nature. The hierarchy is canceled. Thank you. Yes. For that clarification. Mm -hmm. So that's our dragon corner. As you can see, Jared and I are pretty passionate about this topic. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, we're going to tell you a little story about why we chose to include it on our little podcast. What happened to you, Jared? Oh, boy. A headache. Um... A big, a, a big old, a big old duty. A big old duty happened to Jared. So I think I've said a few points on uh, this podcast that I am uh, sort of in the uh, field of education and a lot of like insect based groups and everything because it's pretty important for me to uh, get people to you know start liking bugs and stop hating them for no reason. Yeah, could you guys tell that Jared likes bugs? I like bugs a little bit. <laughs> um, so there was this, uh, there was this post one day about oh Madison, do you know what a pompilid is or a spider wasp? No. Uh, spider wasp is um, something from the spider spider wasp family Pompilidae. Uh, they have this really cool venom con- concoction that can paralyze spiders. Um, so the wasp will sting a spider uh, sometimes several times, depends on the species and the spider. Uh, the spider will become paralyzed for the rest of its shortish life. Um, the wasp will drag the spider back to a den. It will lay a single egg on that spider, and the baby has a meal. Oh wow! Yeah, nifty. So and gruesome. And gruesome. So is this something that could seem a little messed up from the human perspective? Uh, sure. You know, if we incorporate our own morals onto that animal, then yeah, that could be a little messed up. Yeah, um, listeners, if any of you were like, oh, while Jared was saying that, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs> we hear your reactions. Um, is this something that we should be getting involved in and, you know, stopping from happening? No. No. Uh, this is a very important part of nature. This is basically life hanging in the balance. Um, these paras- these parasitoid wasps would not be doing this if there wasn't an ecological need for it. Uh, populations hang in the balance. Each animal species has so many things limiting its population, and if it didn't have those things, it would be out of whack. It would be, which is why, like, ugh, I, it annoys me when I'm watching nature documentaries with people who aren't me, and, <laughs> like, they're like, oh, no, 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 no when, like, the lion, like, catches its prey or whatever, and I'm like, hey, he needs to eat. I'm like, I'm gonna see a good squelch. Also, especially when they're like, oh, no, 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 and then they take a bite of, like, a chicken nugget. <laughs> Dude. <laughs> Just a little bit weird. Um, but apparently I had the audacity to uh, feel this. Um, the person who posted this thing was like, oh, uh, I saw this uh, thing happening. I saw the spider uh, uh, pulling the wasp. I saved the spider. Uh, does anybody else do this? First of all, uh, 
you really don't know if he saved the spider or not. There was, like, one person who was able to, like, bring a tarantula back after it was abandoned by a wasp. Tarantulas and typical spiders are separated by a few hundred million years of evolution. So no evidence. That is no. not credible evidence to say that, that it works for other spiders. Tarantulas are so much bigger. Like, they are. I highly doubt you could... Yeah. Um, but basically, I was like, hey, you know, you really don't want to uh, uh, do this because this is uh, basically everything I was just uh, pontificating about. Yeah, you're about. interrupting a natural cycle that needs to occur for everything to keep doing its cycles. Mm -hmm. And then the spider savers found me. Oh, no. Um, so I, uh, basically, this was something that I was, uh, did, like, one or two comments in the morning, and I was like, oh, I think I'm done with this thread. I said what I had to say. I turned on my phone again, and just people were just coming at my goddamn throat of being like, oh, why would you tell this person that they can't save the spider? Why would you do that? And then it's just the same thing over and over and over and over and over again, because, ah, <laughs> You know, it's okay to feel bad for the spider. It's fine. I'm not saying it's not. But what becomes a bit much is when you start throwing your hand in an interaction that has been going on for at the least millions of years. Um, you know, yeah. it's not just one person. Uh, every single person that came to me in that thread, it was just a small thread. And I had at least 30 people coming at my goddamn life. So... Yes, one person saving a spider isn't going to do much, but you have to compound the efforts of all of these people all doing it. Um... You know, it's just, it's not helpful to no, anything. It's not helpful to save animals from other animals. No. Um, and what this really gets into is like, ah, uh, the hypocrisy that I see in these ideologies where people are like, oh, I love nature. I love this animal, but f that animal. So this is why we wanted to do this episode. Because Jared and I have a lot of feelings and interactions. Um <laughs> in our work trying to interpret animals for the public, mm -hmm. um, where people pick sides. And instead of trying to extend their empathy to all of God's creation, if you will, or all of the living things, they express their love by choosing one over another and then defending them against each other, which is not helpful no. to uh, anyone. Also, if anyone uh, in those groups uh, remembers me from that, uh, stop asking me if a bug is friend or foe. I've never answered that question, and I don't ever intend to. All friend. All friend. All friend. Unless you mess it up. Unless it's like bed bugs that I couldn't really like legitimately defend. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so you see this ideology in people with the whole sharks versus dolphins thing. Mm-hmm. Um, people are like, oh, dolphins are so friendly. They help everybody. And like, um, I love a dolphin. And then... Bro, dolphins are psychopaths. Like... Yeah. <laughs> so, and then on the other end, then people are like, but sharks are mean. You don't want to see a shark, blah, blah, blah. And then now that new science is coming out, showing us that dolphins do things like rape people <laughs> um, and torture other animals. Now people are like, no, f dolphins. The sharks were right the whole time. It's like, no, they both are fine. <laughs> They both are just doing their own thing, and you need to stop deciding who's the angel and who's the devil, who's the hero and who's the villain, because all of those narratives are human. Yeah. And when you're placing them on those animals, you're obscuring your view of what those animals really are and what they really do, and you're limiting your ability to appreciate what they actually are and to see what they actually are. Is the idea that there's, like, a bad guy in every interaction eco-fascist? Um... You know, I'm not sure if I would put that in the eco-fascist bin, but I would definitely put that in the anthropomorphizing bin because... But, like, is... fascism is, like, grounded in, like, good and evil. It's true. So, yeah, it's definitely a gateway. Okay. Um, and, yeah, the good and evil thing, which is a part of so many of our human stories, especially in Western cultures, mm -hmm. not in all cultures, um, is really problematic, separating those things into black and white. It's actually a fallacy that psychologists will point at you if you go to therapy and they're like, hey, stop doing that. <laughs> because it's harmful to you and it's harmful to others. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's why we wanted to do this. So, as discussed, we brought in our friend Tori. And I wish I could say she was here today. but She's, she's here not. in spirit. She's here in spirit and in email. <laughs> um, so, as I mentioned the thing with dolphins, one of the things that people point to a lot in animals and then basically go on to say that animal is good or evil based on how it treats this way of existing is sex. Mm -hmm. Something we also do to other people. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, sex shaming, all of that kind of stuff is a problem in our human cultures. And of course that extends to animals because anything we do to each other, we do it to animals way worse. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, so I'm not talking about having sex with animals. <laughs> 
That's not what this is about. Just to make that clear. Um, but Tori had some really interesting insights about basically how sex works for different animals and how people look at it the wrong way. So I'm going to read what she wrote because she's very eloquent. Very excited to have her words here. And um, we're just going to have a little free will and discussion. Love it. All right. So we've now entered the sex part of sex, death, and vegans. All right. Make it a little bigger for you. Thank you. All right, so animals in captivity. So accredited zoos and aquariums use certain criteria when evaluating and monitoring animal welfare. The public is often oblivious to the amount of thought and discussion that goes into every single detail of an enclosure, enrichment, population numbers, feeding methods, handling, training, etc. One of the most difficult parts of these husbandry jobs is taking the heated criticism or even just overhearing the wrong assumptions people make when looking at an exhibit where the animals are living. So, as discussed, one particularly sensitive subject is mating. Reproductive strategies across different species are so incredibly diverse that it can be hard for us as humans to accept some of them. For example, white sharks and most other shark species that we know of. So mating can look really brutal for sharks. A male will bite onto a female and will not let go until she mates with him. He might chomp on a pectoral fin, spin her until she gives in, drag her around the pen, leaving open wounds. Large females often have large mating scars that can indicate how many mating seasons she's been through. And all of this, you might be going, Ugh! might sound horribly barbaric to us. Of course it does. If that happened to us, that would be bad. <laughs> <laughs> However, there is more about these animals and their lives that we need to consider. The wounds look bad, but they're almost always superficial, meaning they're skin deep. Mm -hmm. In fact, female sharks often have significantly thicker skin than males just to be able mm -hmm. to like survive this ordeal. So natural selection is helping females to survive this. Exactly. So if we put ourselves in the shoes of the shark during that exchange, the female shark, we're like, oh my God, I'd be ripped apart. Well, if you were a human, but, <laughs> <laughs> but these are sharks we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So the scars and wounds that females get during mating heal without any permanent damage. And the scarring that we can see does not affect the individual's ability to survive. Also, sharks don't care about scars. Not so much. <laughs> the females are built to take these kinds of injuries and full-grown females are usually bigger than males and can often outmuscle them. So, back to welfare. One thing we score animals on is how closely their experience and behavior in captivity matches that of their wild counterparts. And that includes mating. So if animals cannot mate in captivity, they're not able to carry out all the life processes they would in the wild, and that's considered to be worse for their welfare in general. On the one hand, we have guests who see two animals fighting or being picked on and with visible injuries, and that looks really bad. Like, for example, imagine seeing shark mating if you went to an aquarium. Basically, oh, yeah. you see two sharks looking like they're ripping each other apart. Um, most people looking at that to the average eye would think, oh my God, why would they put those two together? They're bullying each other. Oh my God, this is a terrible institution. How would they let this happen? However, that's something that happens in their lives in the wild. And it's something that they need to do in order for life, the cycles of life to continue. Mm -hmm. So not what it seems. So, however, only keeping one sex or keeping them separately deprives that animal of a large part of their natural history and impacts their behavior. There can even be health concerns because of this. Oviparous animals, egg-laying animals, like many of the smaller shark species that are kept in zoos and aquariums, can become egg-bound if they are not kept with a male for extended periods of time. This is more common in some egg-laying species than others, but these reproductive health issues can be very serious and even lethal. So um, being egg-bound basically means you're stuck with an egg in you that you can't lay, and then the shark, it can get infected and the shark can die. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what can happen if you don't keep the males and females together and let this sort of brutal looking mating ritual happen as nature intended. Um, so if they tear each other up and people don't like it, but if you don't let them tear each other up, they tear themselves up on the insides. What is the right answer? Tori says, you can't possibly explain every aspect of an animal's natural history to every visitor that looks at an exhibit for a maximum of five minutes. That's really... Uh, Woo! As educators! That's really giving us some credit there. <laughs> yeah. We're talking oh. like 10 to 20 seconds average. Truly. And especially when you cannot explain mating because parents will just take their kids away. Mm -hmm. They'll just take them away. Um, and don't follow them and try to continue with the No, then you'll get 
pepper sprayed or something. I mean, that's never <laughs> happened to me, but like, you know. Not to me either. We don't but... follow people and try no. to talk to them when they don't want to be talked to. Um, also, as Dory points out, that's not the point of zoos and aquariums. <laughs> um, the main goal is learning, but it's not learning facts. It's learning to care, inspiring care for these animals and their habitats that inspires people to take actions to help take better care of the planet. That's really what zoos and aquariums are for. And um, it is almost impossible for someone who has never seen an animal to be empathetic to their existence and what's happening to their habitat, etc. And that's particularly true for organisms who are very much different than us. Which, by the way, is a lot more common than I think people tend to think. Yeah. Like, think about, like, all the kids that grew up in, like, the dead center of a city that are not mm -hmm. ever going to see more than, like, a pigeon flying around. You know what's really interesting? Um, in a study that I'll cover on an upcoming episode, um, they found that kids in inner city areas actually are more empathetic towards animals because they see animals in cartoons and movies rather than seeing animals actually do their natural behaviors in the wild. And it's not a bad thing, though. So what happens there is they have a really, like, cuddly idea of animals and really love them, but their idea of animals is anthropomorphized. So when they actually see animals doing what they do in the wild, which can look really brutal, they have the inappropriate response. Oh, boy. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but back to Tori. <laughs> so... Um, it's easy to get people to care about the survival of a cute and cuddly looking panda, a mammal that's perceived to be non-threatening and we can identify with. It gets harder to do that with reptiles like snakes, and it gets even harder to get the general public to care about invertebrates like crabs, snails, bugs. That's why I do what I do. Yeah. So she says, this is getting off topic, but <laughs> <laughs> the point of exhibits are for people to see the animal, learn a couple of, of quick facts. That's not entirely true. It's to see the animal in its habitat and hopefully form a connection with them. Um, husbandry staff does their best to keep that animal as happy, in quotes, <laughs> and healthy as possible in captivity where people can see them and be more aware of their own impact on this world and the animals that live in it. Uh, happy being in quotes because that is a whole other can of worms that uh, yep. we could open up. But basically, um, as shitty as this might be to say, zookeepers are not looking for happiness. They're looking for what Tori said earlier. They're, they're, they're looking for natural behaviors and the deviations from that. Because we are not in a position to decide what happiness looks like for another being, whether it be human or otherwise. Um, the best we can do is replicate the natural conditions because those are the ones that they are best adapted to, which gives them the best chance at welfare, which is sort of how we would describe happiness. Um, also our idea of happiness is, has changed a lot over time, especially since TV, That's true. by the way, um, like happiness in the constitution, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, I guess they would mean it as like success. Yeah. They mean it as like, um, financial security. Hmm. <laughs> um, well, that would be nice. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so those rights are being violated. Oh boy. Um, but anyway, that's a whole other can of worms. So yeah, happy is a loaded word. It changes meaning all the time, just like our other human words. And um, you really can't tell if an animal is happy. They don't have the same cues that we do. No, they do not. They do not. All right. So back to non-consensual reproduction. <laughs> back to sex. I don't think we need to point out why in our human cultures, meeting, males mating with females who have not consented to such an act is immoral. Hopefully I don't have to break that down for y'all. <laughs> But Tori says, let's break down a few of the most important points, though. There are the injuries that often come with any kind of physical restraint or altercation, but typically those are still superficial. Women who have been sexually assaulted can usually walk away from an incident. Usually. So what part of this behavior is so horrific to us? Is it the threat of conceiving? Well, I don't think that's the worst part of it either. If a man has used protection while sexually assaulting a woman and not injured her, is it no big deal? Of course not. It is still horrific. The real reason why is trauma. That interaction has a devastating impact on a woman's mental health. It can take years for someone to recover from a single event. So is that just humans? Are there other species that can be traumatized by non-consensual mating? Personally, I don't know the answer. That's what Tori says. I also don't know the answer. But behaviors seen in captive macaws are an interesting example to look at in this context. In the wild, females live in groups and only mate when fertile fertile. In captivity, if you keep one male and one female, they will mate daily. However, if you keep numbers that better reflect how they would interact in the wild, i.e. three or more females to one male, then again, the females will only mate when fertile. 
If the male tries to mate when they are not fertile, the other females will defend each other and drive him away. This clearly shows that females are not always okay with mating, but will let it happen when they can't overpower the male and a fight would be unsafe for them. So, is that traumatic? I would argue, so we're out of Tori's words and into me. I would argue that being, having that drastic change from a natural pattern to mating every single day and not having a choice in it would probably be traumatic for the parrot. Yeah. Although we don't know how other animals' bodies experience trauma. If you want to know how human bodies experience trauma, great book is The Body Keeps the Score. Um, and there is evidence in that book that points to the fact that our trauma responses have evolved as we've evolved as organisms. So you can point to evidence in there that other animals probably share some of those same mechanisms for basically avoiding something that would cause them extreme harm, trauma. (laughs) Yeah. So, and I think this example that Tori pointed out also really does a great job of reflecting how... (laughs) humans looking at something and thinking one thing is very different than replicating the natural conditions and seeing what happens. So some people would look at two macaws, a male and a female mating every day and say, oh, they're so happy. They love each other. (laughs) But somebody who knows what macaws do in the wild would say that is not normal. And I think the fact that when there's more females, they actually go back to that natural way and like fight off the male when it's not time. Um, that goes to show that maybe the meeting every day wasn't so happy. Probably not. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So the best chance we have when we're taking animals out of their natural habitat is to replicate it as best as possible. Not to give them what we think would make them the happiest, but to give them what they're used to. Um, and then there's also an issue with that, with how much the world has changed over the years and how many animals are living in habitats that do not accurately reflect what they're adapted to. This is true. That is a whole other systemic issue. Yes, um. it is. <laughs> um, all right. Believe it or not, there are even more pieces of consent we could analyze, such as selective pressure, but we will save most of this discussion for the next section, which is... Murder! I'm going to let Jared take that one. Because I love murder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So... Some animals have evolved to behave and live in ways that we might not agree with. Can we be critical of something that works so well it evolved into the normal behavior of a species? That's a good question. Right. The answer is uh, we have to be because yeah. uh, it is dumb for us to be just kind of putting our hand in it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm so eloquent today. Um, <laughs> good thing we have Tori here. Mm-hmm. For example, jewel wasps. Uh, yes. Pause your screen to look up jewel wasps right now. They are absolutely gorgeous. Uh, Ampulex is the genus, if I remember correctly. But yes, yeah. it is because when you told me that, I was like, "That sounds like a jewel." That Ampulex it does. Ampulex sounds like amulet. That's yeah. Kind of sounds like amputation to me, which doesn't make sense because they chew off the oh. cockroaches and tenny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. So jewel wasps <laughs> will take live cockroaches, uh, bury them in a hole. Oh, she skipped the cool part. So jewel wasps actually have this uh, venom that is able to manipulate the behavior of their host, the cockroach. Um, and they're so goddamn dexterous with it that they can literally like fish around in the cockroach's head and find the right parts to stab. But um, The right part of the brain that the venom does to change their behavior in the way that fosters reproduction. So cool. It's amazing. Um, um, so by the way... This is an example of, you know, humans. Jared looks in that. Jared and I look at that and go, that is so cool. I bet at least one of you was like, that is terrifying. Oh, we even got to the terrifying part yet. I know. Um, okay. The terrifying part is when the cockroach starts to uh, show. Uh, neurotic is, I guess, the right word for it. It just cleans and cleans and cleans and cleans. Mm-hmm. Uh, after which, the wasp will chew off the cockroach's antennae and uh, bring it. It'll grab its head and it will pull it. And the cockroach will walk with the wasp into a burrow. Uh, the wasp will lay its egg inside uh, the cockroach. and Who has just cleaned himself for us. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep. And the eggs are going to devour the cockroach alive as they grow. Uh, and when they are big enough, they will... This is Tori words, Tori's words now. They will burst out of its body like the Kool-Aid man. Ha! Kool-Aid man! He's back! He's back. Um, I don't <laughs> think that's the way the Kool-Aid man does it, but... Is it the blob man? Well, I was thinking like like the alien from um, uh, oh, Spaceballs. Oh, Predator. Oh. Oh. Well, I guess mine's well, the that's a space balls. That alien is a spoof on the alien and predator, which is or a... the predator and alien. Wait, what? Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> no, no, no. That that's alien. Predator is the the guy. Oh, he's the... the big guy. Yeah, yeah. My bad. I did. I every time. <laughs> <laughs> Frankenstein or Frankenstein's monster. I cannot get my references straight. Okay. Uh, regardless, that way <laughs> the predator life evolved. Um, now, do we imagine this animal to be an evil monster? 
Uh, well, some of us might, uh, but I would expect most people to shrug it off and have the point of view of that's nature. One could only hope. Um, so these animals are born that way. Uh, that makes it okay. Question mark. I present to you serial killers. We have those. Uh, I think it has been pretty well documented at this point that there are people who are just born with murderous instincts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, kind of. I mean, the nature versus nurture argument is still in play, yeah. but yeah. One could argue it's always both, but you know. Yeah. Uh, now is not... Oh. <laughs> now is not the time to get into the nature versus nurture oh. argument. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Tori, for keeping us on track. Yeah. Uh, but there is enough evidence that there are some people who are raised in totally happy homes with normal experiences, still have brains that crave violence. Yep. Uh, I.e. Jeffrey... Wait, no. Jeffrey Dahmer was not in a happy home. Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy. So... Is it fine if they were born like that? Of course it's not. Nope. All of this is a painfully simplified and incomplete view on human psychology. Yep. But the point is, we expect people to know better. Yep. Humans are raised being taught right or wrong. Some variations between cultures create discrepancies in some values, but random murder is frowned upon by pretty much everybody. Yep. Uh, we are... Uh, oh, I guess we're ignoring justified murder for now. Yeah, well, that's only in some cultures. So. That's, that's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we don't really have that here. That serial killer was taught and learned that killing just to kill is immoral. We as humans prove this by treating human children differently than adults. If a kid hits someone, we react very differently than if an adult hits someone. The kid needs to learn and is still developing as a person. An adult should know better. This implies that acts are only immoral. Oh. Mm -hmm. This implies that acts are only immoral if the organism is aware that, that they are immoral and does them anyway. So, do we think that wasps know better? Let's pause here. Yeah, so, like, this is the idea with morality. So, animals can only be moral subjects, or moral objects, not moral subjects. What we can mean? look at them through the lens of our own morality, but we cannot expect them to act on our own morality. Absolutely not. Yeah, because whatever moral codes they have, if any, are not the same as ours, and we don't know how they learn them or communicate them with each other. So. Mm-hmm. Does the wasp know that we think it's uh, evil? No. Does no. it care? Even if it did? Probably not. No. What, what would be immoral for that wasp is probably something like, well, I mean, I don't know if the wasp has morality, but I imagine <laughs> this is anthropomorphizing. But what might be immoral for that wasp would be like if you sting a cockroach and then let it go to waste. Don't lay your eggs on it. Yeah, that'd be dumb. That'd be dumb. Mm -hmm. So, eh. <laughs> yeah, waste not, wasp not. Um. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so do we think wasps know better? No, they know different, and it's not a matter of better or worse. Mm -hmm. And it would be presumptive of us to think that we could even ask them if they know better. Yep. Because, um, you know, they're wasps. Moving on to one of my favorites. <laughs> Here's another example that will probably bother people. Oh, I love you, Tori. Orcas! Orcas! We have tons of scientific evidence that shows that cetaceans are very intelligent and capable of empathy. Mm -hmm. Orcas will cry for their babies if they die or get lost. Yeah. These animals can actually become depressed and mourn. Yeah. Uh, that is literally true. Dolphins will help save people from drowning. Um, I don't know the exact studies done, but I think it was assumed that because they breathe air, they understand what drowning is. Oh, mm -hmm. so the dolphin empathized yeah. with the person. Yeah, it, also some people were bringing that into question when, remember recently that guy got stuck in the mouth of a humpback whale? No. What? It happened to a, a lobster diver in Maine. I thought that was a lie. No, it really happened. Really? Yeah. Um, oh my god. Yeah, well, I mean, it, the, he was in a uh, school of Menhaden. Oh. Yeah. And, and he just got f***ing ache. Exactly. He got stuck in the mouth, and then the whale immediately brought him up to the surface and spit him out up oh. in the air. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> he knew that he breathed. He was like, what is this thing? Tastes like it's drowning. Like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Oh, can I just like real quick sidebar? I learned today from an, a different article that I thought about covering later, which I still might. Um, humpback whales save other animals from orcas. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's interesting. Altruism. Interspecific altruism. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Now, to me, this shows that cetaceans can understand and care about suffering in other species. Something else orcas do is play with their food. Yep. This is like what cats do, but on a much larger scale. Mm -hmm. Before anyone gets offended, I'm not talking about orca pods working together to make waves and push a seal off the ice to catch it and eat it. That's just hunting. Orcas gotta eat. Okay, by the way, you said like cats, but much more. When cats are playing with their food, it's actually not playing. It's um, it's a strategy to, um, or some scientists theorize that it's a hunting strategy that allows them to use less energy because basically they let the animal tire itself out instead of expending the energy to kill it outright. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Something for me to think about. Yeah. Um, 
Blah, blah, blah. What I'm talking about is when orcas will injure their prey and catch it over and over again. That's playing. They will toss baby seals into the air and whip them around like dog toys. Uh, I uh, encourage you to look up that video where it punts a seal literally like 80 feet into the air. And because, as we learned from Killer Grandmas, orcas live in matriarchal societies where games like this are actually passed on from the grandmother, grandmothers will teach them games such as playing basketball with a seal <laughs> from mm-hmm. tail to tail. Exactly. This is where animals start to look mean in my eyes. Mm-hmm. Should orcas know better? They have shown the capacity to understand, and they do it anyway. Are they immoral? Could it be more accepted if we considered value of individuals in other species? We certainly do that with people, but are seals less valuable than orcas? Does size matter? Again, a little too much to unpack for this topic. She does this at the end of every paragraph. I know. I'm like, well, now I can get back into the hierarchy of being, a hierarchy of nature, um, looking, assigning different value to different animals. Also, I would argue that although cetaceans have shown to be capable of understanding, they don't necessarily understand that other organisms experience pain. Yeah, that's true. Well, then you could go back to the whole saving the person thing. Like, drowning hurts. Yeah, but they might be doing it because of death. Oh, yeah. True. Yeah. Yeah. We just don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, The orca example also touches on how motivation plays a significant role in human perception of morality. Word. If an orca kills a seal and eats it, that's just surviving. (laughs) Wait, no, you have to say it the way she wrote it. If an orca murks a seal and eats it, (laughs) that's just surviving. (laughs) If an orca is tossing an injured or already dead seal around, it is probably for entertainment. If someone walks up and kills a stranger, that's bad. Yes. If a stranger breaks into your house with a gun and wants to kill your children, you can bet no one will send you to jail for murdering them. Depends on your skin color. Yeah, unfortunately. God, our justice system. Anyway. Goddamn. I think motivation is a fairly obvious component uh, and deserves to be mentioned, but not overly discussed. People get it. Yeah. Motivation is sort of the whole... Intention is the whole thing with morality. Um, and then there's that whole discussion about, does intention or impact matter more? Yeah. What oh. could say impact, always. Uh, but, you know. Well, yeah. yeah. It, it's, mm, anyway. Well, I mean, not always, always, but a lot. There's never an always. That's yeah. the thing. Mm-hmm. That's the thing with morality. It's not black and white, y'all. Never black and white. Mm-hmm. Oh, here's a... <laughs> here's, here's a, a great example. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Keeping us on track. Here's a great example of just or unjust killing in the animal world. Penguins! Oh, I'm so happy she brought this up. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just here to upset people by defending wasps and ruining penguins and orcas for people. Tori is one of my favorites. Love you, Tori. Uh, there are some species of penguins that have developed a survival strategy that involves killing other penguins. That's right. If a penguin is unsure about whether or not it is safe to go in the water, they waddle over to the closest fellow penguin and shove them into the water. Just gonna let, let that sink in. If they get eaten by a seal or shark, danger. Don't go into the water right now. If they don't, uh, then they hop on into and go find some fish. I imagine the other penguin is waiting under the water with a what the f look on their face. Mm-hmm. The motivation is pretty cruel, uh, but it keeps that individual penguin safe. Penguins are very social animals, so there is some level of understanding that that individual is your own kind. Because it's the same species, is that worse? Or is it just nature? Because it falls under the category of self-preservation. Uh, uh, uh. Yeah, see, it's, yeah. It's, it's tricky. It is tricky. Um... I love that fact about penguins. Mm-hmm. I think it's fascinating. Also, it reminds me a lot of Squid Game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. And yeah. for them, it literally is Squid Game, because that's mostly what they eat. <laughs> oh, uh, here's something else about morality and how it holds back science. Uh, there were... Uh, should I even tell the story not remembering any of the names or even what time it was? Go yes, for I... it. It's, it's science and podcasts. People aren't coming here for... Just do it. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, I th- it's one of the Antarctic species, species of penguin that, um, our knowledge of them got held back for quite a while because there was this ex- expedition to Antarctica to, uh, go look at those penguins. It was mating season and that made penguins do a lot of behaviors that penguins are sort of ingrained to do during the mating season. Uh, this means non-consensual, uh, interactions with other penguins. This mm-hmm. means mating with dead bodies. Oh yeah. Um, a lot of mating with dead bodies. So- A lot of birds do that. Also people. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, you know, the human knows. The bird is- Again, it, it, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know if they know. Um, so the problem uh, with this is not necessarily the penguins, because that's just, you know, it's, what's, it's, it's what the penguins do. Yeah. Um, the problem is that the person who found out this research uh, uh, showed his research to the museum, and they were like, no, no one is allowed to know about this. Ugh. So they shoved it away in a note, and I think it was about 40 or 50 years until someone actually found that manuscript, and then we started knowing about it. But it took so long because the goddamn Victorian pansies, or I shouldn't say the word pansies, because goddamn Victorian, the, the, the 
nitty winks or like yeah i couldn't think of any word that wasn't offensive <laughs> <laughs> we'll go with uh, nitty winks the victorian mm, puritans yeah Goddamn Victorian Puritans making me take longer to figure. Now, I was actually Hiding born... information because it's uncomfortable. Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. Hold this back. Yeah. 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 Ugh. We didn't have a segue for the next section. We didn't. So, like, that's... <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Tori also has some other random thoughts that didn't fit anywhere um, about female hyenas and their pseudo-penises, um, about... Sneaky males and elephant seals. Basically, there's a lot of these moral conundrums um, in the animal kingdom that humans look at and see as black and white or and pick a hero and a villain um, and decide which animals are capital good, capital G good, or capital V bad based on how these behaviors look to us from the outside. Um, and so many of these behaviors we do not know the reason for. We do not know the motivation or the intention. Um, we don't know the full extent even of the results or how it plays into their life cycle. Mm -hmm. And so it's just preposterous to throw our own moral codes on these creatures that have every right to exist just as much as we do, have their own way of doing things, um, and to go in and tell an animal what is or is not okay to do. It's very similar to the principles behind colonization. Mm -hmm. Especially when you go in and try to help and end up making it worse, too. Yeah, speaking of penguins, I remember one interaction at an aquarium... Um, penguins were mating, which is a great sign. Mm -hmm. um, when they mate, it means they feel safe. They feel like no one's going to kill them. Um, and a mother came up to me and said, well, how are you letting them do that? Put them away. <laughs> <laughs> As if it's that easy. Yeah. Um, oof. Just, yeah. Or people being really mean to their dogs for humping each other. Like, yeah. It's, you know, it's instinct. Yeah. I had a cat once that loved to hump this fuzzy blanket and sometimes people would come over and they'd get really uncomfortable that he was doing that and be like, hey, I'm not going to stop him. That's his girlfriend. Yep. Mm -hmm. And it's a blanket. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Don't put your morality on a blanket. Yeah. Or other animals. Now, um, I talked a little bit at the beginning of this about ecofascism on the right and how it could become part of manifestos that lead to mass killings. Mm -hmm. However, where we mostly find eco-fascist principles and this hyper-morality on the left is in white veganism. So, people who love animals a lot and have a visceral reaction um, to seeing animals killed often gravitate to the lifestyle of veganism. And honestly, I have nothing wrong with that. Veganism is a wonderful diet and it's honestly, really sweet to react that strongly to suffering in, in another living thing. However, just like um, there's a problem with enforcing non-human or enforcing human morality on non-human organisms, there's also a problem with enforcing your own moral code on other humans mm -hmm. um, when it's not something that's agreed upon by the populace that you live in. Like, don't kill people. <laughs> <laughs> that was um, pretty clear cut. Yeah, so now we are seguing away from our freewheeling discussion of Tori's thoughts on sex and murder in the animal kingdom over to um, my thoughts, or the thoughts I have found online, about veganism, pros, cons, um, why it's so popular to hate vegans, and what vegans can do to fix that, basically. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so there's two articles that I found that were really helpful in picking apart this topic. Um, as well as actually a scientific article that was published in the Palgrave Macmillan Animal Ethics series. Hmm. So I'll start there. The title of this article is Decolonizing Veganism on Resisting Vegan Whiteness and Racism. Love it. And it's, uh, it was written by Jennifer Polish, September 2016. So it's, I would say the biggest problem <laughs> in veganism is the whiteness of it. Because who loves to tell other people how they should be living and tell them they need to change their lives and White make them feel a lot of shame about it? Yes. That's who? Colonizers. So, many activists and scholars of color discussed in this article have made very clear that the definition of humanity is irrevocably entrenched in Western conceptions of the value of life. These are in the words of Jennifer Polish in this article. To achieve man status with a capital M or human status is fundamentally to achieve westernized whiteness and thus the very hierarchy of human versus non-human animal that veganism challenges is charged with the history of white supremacy from the outset. I'm snapping. She's just so <laughs> eloquent. 
Um, when we talk about racist language and physical violence as dehumanizing, we're invoking the ways that structures of whiteness have and continue to position people of color as less than human or as an animal. It is difficult, if not impossible, to critically reflect on veganism as both a politically charged foodways practice and a critical ethical commentary on animality. How have Western cultures managed to fundamentally transform dead, non-human animal bodies into meat rather than corpses or carcasses without attending to the racial implications of animality? And that's what that whole article is about. Mm -hmm. I was not able to download the whole article because it was behind a paywall, but I think it sets up questions that are really at the core of why white vegans are such a problem on Facebook. <laughs> so the other article that I pulled from is by Charlie Mitchell, and it was published on Civil Eats, August 26th, 2020. Um, so this is a quote from uh, A. Breeze Harper, who is the author and founder of the Sista Vegan Project, which is a um, totally women and people of color-led vegan association. So she wrote a letter to PETA in 2014 that said, Black people will continue to be treated as animals until post-racial, post-humanists, I don't see color power holders like PETA practice the tenets of Black Lives Matter. PETA does that? Mm-hmm. Along with many other anti-racist movements. How do they... Really? So, yeah. Um, the I mean, problem I... with veganism as we see it represented is the whiteness of it. When you picture a vegan, what do you picture in your head? Skinny white dude. With dreads, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's what we all picture. That's what we see represented, um, as like the mouthpiece and the face of veganism, even though, um, And PETA contributes to that? Yes, very much. I mean, I'm not for PETA at all, PETA but I'm wondering how. PETA is a problem. So... It is definitely a problem, but PETA how does it... PETA was created and is owned by white men, and they refuse to basically include any intersectionality in oh. their discourse on veganism. They think that bringing the discussion of the white supremacist roots of all of this and animalism into it would detract from the animals and basically it's sort of an eco-fascist idea of like people versus animals did not know that yeah boy um so even though white vegans are like everywhere um in our mind and on facebook um actually the majority of vegans in the world are not white um so even in america um eight percent of black americans identify as vegan which makes them three times more likely to be vegan than any other groups of Americans. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and activists and allies all together point to this obstacle as the largest barrier to reforming animal rights organizations in favor of addressing larger systems of oppression. So similar to what we've run into in nonprofits that we've worked in, they don't want to widen the lens and look at the larger issues that continue to propagate things like the mistreatment of animals in factory farms. They make it a much smaller issue, a individual issue of you're killing these animals by eating the meat instead of the culture of colonization, capitalism, and white supremacy is what has allowed these terrible factory farming practices to continue because these ideologies allow us to separate any other living thing from ourselves as less than just because they are different. Mm -hmm. So, which is a common thread that runs through problems that we see popping up in many different intersections in our society. But they think that widening the lens like that detracts from their core issue, which makes me think that their core issue is not the mistreatment of animals. It's moral superiority sure seems like it yeah um big old problem right there um and <laughs> so if you look at vegan activist organizations the people who hold the most money and the most power in animal rights fundraising communities are what white men mm -hmm. specifically and white women are a problem too don't get me wrong um, and these insular, mega-rich donor circles and executive teams are the primary resistors to expanding the scope of the movement. Ultimately, when white leaders refuse to include other aspects of social justice into animal rights movements, um, Alex Berry, who is quoted in this article, sees it as inherently linked to questions of ego. And I love this quote. When white men help animals, the animals will never threaten their status or power or money or jobs. 
But if they help people of color and women, it could mean that white men would have to share their money and leadership positions with others. And that makes people in power very uncomfortable. Interesting. So basically, veganism attracts some of the worst types of white people because it allows them to hold that moral superiority without compromising any of their power. Because if you do... Oh, uh... This is clicking because if yeah. you try to shoehorn it into like, oh, I care about animals, then no one can challenge you. Exactly. And they can, because so many people do eat meat for many reasons, including like health conditions, like it's really hard to change a diet and people have been eating meat for millions of years. It's fine. <laughs> like there are huge problems in the industry of meat production and like that's the reason I don't eat it. But like the actual act of eating meat, there's nothing inherently morally repugnant about that. No. Um, but when you're a white vegan man on your high horse, you can look at someone and say, look, everything that you care about is invalid because look what you're doing to that animal. <laughs> so it's a really easy way to just like invalidate someone's entire existence because of their food choices. Exactly. Exactly. And it's a lot of whataboutism as well. You know, Goddamn you'll try to bring, yeah, you'll try to bring issues of what's happening to immigrants in our country to these people. And they'll say, well, what about what's happening to animals? And they're always comparing animal like captivity to slavery or prison. Um, oh, this is my aunt. Yeah. Oh, God. Exactly. It allows them this distance and superiority, which if the cause that you are into makes you feel superior to others, that's not a good cause. That's fascism. Yeah, that's a red flag right there. Exactly. If you're getting into it to feel better about yourself, oh. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't feel good about making the good choices that you make, but that should not be the reason. No. No. And when you come into something, it shouldn't be so that you can tell other people what to do. It should be to learn from mm -hmm. other people who are already doing it. Not to boost your own ego. Exactly. And also, y'all, nobody likes being told what to do. And let, that's what I always used to point to when I said I had a problem with vegans, even though I am one. <laughs> um, is that they keep trying to tell people what to do and everyone knows that does not work. Um, but this is, this is really a better reason not to, yeah, not to engage with that. Um, so there you have it. We covered sex. We covered murder. We covered vegans. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I hope you enjoyed this long, winding, freewheeling discussion um, on squashing what is people projecting on animals to feel better about themselves. Let the wasps be wasps. Let the wasps be wasps. Let the chicken eaters eat the chicken and go learn something, okay? Oh, can I end with a fun fact? Yes, absolutely. Did you know that there is such a thing as a tertiary parasite? Yes, because of you. Damn it, you remembered. Um, so, for, so, <laughs> so for everyone in this podcast, um, just to like, I think that one of the best ways to sort of like stop feeling, um, you know, like you have to intrude in these nature processes to sort of learn like how amazing it can actually be. Yes. Um, a tertiary parasite is a parasite inside a parasite inside a parasite that is leeching off a host. Mm -hmm. So you have three parasites goddamn inside of each other. Um, parasitic wasps are so, so well adapted for, 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 for their lives. And I don't really have a point to this uh, besides the fact that it's just so goddamn cool. It is so cool. And here's one of the things I love about you, Jared. And the reason why I wanted to do a podcast together is because you're one of a very small handful of people I've met in my life who, when you look at something, you seek to understand it instead of to judge it. I like that. And I think that, that. that, yeah, I think that's the key to good science. I think that's the key to having empathy for other creatures that doesn't pit them against each other. Mm -hmm. Instead of looking at something like a tertiary parasite um, and deciding whether it's good or bad or whether you love it or hate it or what's your favorite, look at it to see what it is and what it's doing and without any judgment except that whatever it's doing, it's supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, in our little human world that's gotten so complex and so hard to navigate, we have, we're very wrapped up in the idea of purpose and of, you know, doing good versus doing bad. And how are we going to leave the world? Like, are we going to leave it better than we found it and all of that? And I think it's, that all creates a lot of anxiety and a lot of bad feelings. And I think a better way to look at the world is everything that exists, exists for a reason. We don't have to know what that reason is, but 
We don't have to force one on it either. No, we do not. No. We're not in the position to decide that for other organisms, but it's really exciting that we're all here and we get to see each other. Every moment that you get to see another living thing is a moment that someone who's not alive doesn't get to have. This is true. Yeah. So when you look at a thing, don't decide whether it's useful or not. Um, look at it and just look at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Even if it's gross. Like, be like, oh, that's gross. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> do what I do, folks. Yeah. Oh, also, uh, just the... F- uh, everything does have a use, by the way, because there's mm-hmm. been a lot to say uh, that just the existence of a lot more diversity inside a habitat uh, bolsters mm-hmm. the health of that habitat as yeah. well. Uh, so, f*** all y'all that uh, don't like any... I'm sorry, that was a little aggressive. (laughs) (laughs) If you're one of those people that don't like any animals that don't benefit humans, uh, maybe rework your perspective because... They uh, all do. Yeah. They all do. Mm -hmm. Just because something doesn't exist on the timeline that you're used to absorbing things and maybe the chain of how it helps you is too long for you to follow does not mean it's not helping you. Just because you cannot understand it doesn't mean it's not happening. Yes. The world is so much bigger than what we can hold in our weird little squishy primate brains. And I'm sorry for saying y'all. This gets me heated. <laughs> yeah. Y- y'all know. Mm-hmm. Y'all know. If you're listen if you've made it this far in the episode, you're not the ones we're yelling at, probably. Probably. Unless you're like hate listening, in which case Thank you. Wow. Thanks. I'm really impressed Spite brought you this far. Yeah. Um, you're only actually helping us, so don't know why you think you're doing a thing. And we lost him. <laughs> <laughs> So this is not the most structured episode we've ever done, and that's saying something for us, but (laughs) if you're still here, thank you so much for listening. If you have thoughts on this topic, please let us know. We would love to continue the discussion. Maybe I'll post something on the Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. Get some engagement. Um, And yeah, thanks for coming back to us after our little break. And um, rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram, science underscore in underscore podcast. Email us. If you want us to cover something or if you have a correction for us, really anything, we'd love to hear from you. Podcast at scienceandpictures.com. Check out our host, scienceandpictures.com, for cool comics about science. And we will see you, or you will hear us, next time. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Don't look a gift wall.